Okay. I trust that with the snippets of, of verses that I selected from ver, uh, chapter 13 and 14, that you kind of got uh, a good broad stroke of what 13 and 14 is about. So uh, before we dive into the sermon, to our guests, I just want to uh, introduce myself again. My name is Alex. I'm one of the pastors here at Trinity Community Church. Tim Merwin is our lead pastor. And um, this morning, I have the privilege of bringing the word to you. The title of this sermon is The Sovereignty of God Over the Nations. Now, to help us better understand our text, it's helpful to zoom out of it. Basically, if you will, take a helicopter view of the book of Isaiah to understand its bigger context. So textually speaking, here's one way that we can look at the landscape of the book of Isaiah. In chapter 7, we saw the refusal to trust in the Lord. King Ahaz trusted in Assyria instead of Yahweh. In chapter 12, we saw the declaration of trust in the Lord. Verse 2 beautifully says, Behold, God is my salvation I will trust and will not be afraid, for the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. In chapters 13 through 23, we see oracles against nations because trusting in humanity is folly. It's futile. In chapters 24 through 27, we see general statements of God's sovereignty in the world. In chapters 28 through 33, we see woes against those who trust in Egypt rather than Yahweh the Lord. In chapters 34 through 35, we see graphically pictures and contrasting results of the two trust. If you trust in man, then you will be destroyed and you will become like a desert. If you trust in the Lord, then you will flourish and be like a garden. In chapters 40 and 50, we see one of the key themes in the book of Isaiah, and this is it. It's God's unmerited favor that motivates us to trust in him. But with that brief overview, let's pray and let's ask the Lord for help. Father, we thank you this morning for your divine, inerrant, sufficient, all-authoritative word. We thank you that we get to hold that in our hands, on our laps, in our devices. And Father, we confess that in our finiteness, we are limited in understanding and therefore beholding the wondrous works of your law. We pray now and ask you to open our hearts and our minds and our souls to your powerful word that it may accomplish its intended, its intended power to transform. Father, I pray that you would sanctify your church by the washing of your word. Oh, Lord. 
so that when Christ presents his bride, the church, back to you, that she will be found holy and blameless without spot and wrinkle or any such thing. For your glory alone, we ask you that you would do this. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. Well, a father and a daughter were playing on their front porch one Sunday afternoon. It was a cold afternoon, so dressed in her winter clothes, she looked like a little pink marshmallow. At one point during their playtime together, the little girl began to jump off the front porch steps into her daddy's arms. Mama watched through a window with a smile, but with some concern. However, the father's sure-handedness was matched by his love for his daughter. And so what seemed like 15 minutes, the little pink marshmallow girl jumped off the front porch step with exhilaration into her daddy's arms, only to repeat it again and again. This little girl trusted her daddy because her daddy demonstrated over and over and over again that he's got her. He's got her. The father let this continue because he wanted to teach her that one day when she gets older, that she can trust him. Well, Trinity, in our text this morning, similarly, just as sure-handed the father was with the safety and well-being of his daughter, God, in his sovereignty, brought sure-handed victory over the nations and out of compassion for his people. Here's the overarching theme of the sermon this morning. God is sovereign over all things and his purposes are good. Therefore, church, let us place our complete trust in him. He's sovereign over all things, not just over the nations. And his purposes are good for us in our lives. Therefore, let us put our complete trust in him. Now, there are five lessons that I want to draw out of these two chapters. And here's the first one. Pride comes before destruction. So notice in chapter 13, it begins with an oracle concerning Babylon. Actually, if you look at chapters 13 and 23, you will see oracles after oracles against multiple nations. At a glance, through these chapters, one can walk away thinking these oracles are all just about announcements of judgment to these nations. But if we look at these oracles through the lens of redemption, they are actually God's pronouncements of Israel's salvation. You with me, church? 
Notice the word wrath in chapter or verse 9 and 13 of chapter 13. Here we see Isaiah show us again, he, he shows us again that the wrath of God is good and holy. When the Babylonians conquered, exiled, and enslaved the people of God, when the day of the Lord came, listen to Isaiah. He says, It came with cruelty and wrath and fierce anger to make Babylon the land of desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. Why did God bring upon destruction to Babylon? Because of his compassion for his people and because the Babylonians were a proud and arrogant people. Look with me at verse 11. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. Look with me at verse 19. And Babylon, the glory of the kingdoms, the splendor and the pomp of the Chaldeans will be like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew them. In verse 11 of chapter 14, look over to chapter 14, verse 11. Your pomp is brought down to shoal, the sound of your harps. Maggots are laid as a bed beneath you, and worms are your covers. This oracle is not so much about Babylon as it is more about what Babylon represents. Pride and human glory. Raymond Ortland Jr. in his commentary of Isaiah says this, Babylon is a biblical code language for the entire social construct of human defiance toward God. Warren Wiersbe, a pastor, a theologian, says this, in scripture, Babylon symbolizes the world system man has built in defiance of God. Now, before we dismiss Isaiah's oracles concerning Babylon and Assyria and Philistia and Moab and so on and so forth, because we are far removed from the Old Testament world, let's take a closer look at the wording in verse 11. Would you look with me at verse 11, chapter 13? It says, I will punish the world for its evil. I will punish the world for its evil. And the wicked for their iniquity, I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. God punished Babylon, but verse 11 says that he will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. Trinity, do you see that we live in a Babylonian world? It's called the United States of America. We live in a culture where evil and perverseness are celebrated and promoted, and where godly virtues and godly character are rejected and ridiculed. We live in a country where our culture is in defiance to the Lord. 
We live in a community or a country where Christian-owned businesses are forced to shut down because they desire to uphold the sanctity of marriage between a husband and a wife. We live in a culture where killing babies is legal by the law of the land. So as Christians... As brothers and sisters in Christ, as believers, how is it possible to live in this country without paying injustice with injustice? As Christians, how can it be possible to not repay violence with violence? How can we keep from being vengeful toward those who have wronged us and have dealt unjustly against us? How do we engage the anger on social media and the anti-Christian sentiment? Well, I want to submit to you one way. It's by choosing to see that God is sovereignly in control over our culture and that he is working in our midst with a good purpose. I hope to persuade you with this in this sermon. Now, think about this, church. It's, it's easy to become disenchanted with God when we read chapters 13 through 23 because all we see are oracles and oracles and oracles against wicked and prideful nations and arrogant nations. Let me ask you this. This is actually an exegetical um, exercise that pastors use whenever they're trying to exegete the meaning of the word. What would you think of God if chapters 13 through 23 were cut out of the book of Isaiah? Remember, chapters 13 through 23 are judgments against the arrogant, pride, prideful nations and the threat of destroying God's people. What would you think about God if those chapters were taken out of the Bible? Wouldn't you think that God in the Old Testament was unjust because he allowed wicked and prideful nations to go unpunished when they sought to destroy God's people? Chapters 13 to 23 is there to show us that God is just and he will punish those who are evil. And as a result, the judgment against the ungodly nations helps us to trust God and to refrain from anger and frustration. Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, helps us to not revile when we are reviled. The word of God helps us to deal with integrity in all of our dealings, even when we know that others are dealing dirty. The oracles of God helps us to respect when we are disrespected. One day God will intervene and he will repay evil deeds with justice. How long do we have to wait? Isaiah says in in verse six, wail for the Lord, for the day of the Lord is near. How certain is it? It says as destruction from the almighty 
it will come. Who will come to judge the defiant culture that we live in? Jesus will come and God will judge the defiant culture through him. So for now, how should the church's conduct be? Romans 12, verses 17 through 21 says this. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heat burning coals on his head and do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Trinity, this is our reasonable act of worship. This is how we are to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice in light of the gospel. Church, we may not be able to control the world's evil and defiance, but God is in control of the world and its evil. Do you believe that to be true? We may not be able to control evil, but we can control our conduct. You see, overcoming evil with good in this fallen world demonstrates that we are indeed trusting in the Lord. Listen, when we trust God in everything, in every situation, we can have peace in the midst of turmoil. When we trust in God who is sovereign over everything, we can have confidence in the future, even if it seems bleak and dismal. When we trust God completely, there is freedom because we know that his promises are true and will come to pass. You see, Yahweh was not only the God of mercy and grace to his people in the Old Testament. He was not only the God of justice against the evil and wicked nations back then, but he is also the God of mercy and grace to us today, church. He's also the God of justice against defiant cultures. All the evil nations will not be partially destroyed. They will be completely destroyed in the day of the Lord. That's our hope in the midst of a defiant culture. We overcome evil with good and we leave the rest up to God. Now, I want to share with you a pastoral concern. Knowing this shouldn't motivate us to cheer and celebrate the destruction of the wicked and the evil. Knowing that God is just should motivate us, church, to pray for them, for God's mercy and for his grace. You see, by God's grace, we were at one time defiant against God, and he bestowed mercy and grace 
and compassion toward us. Knowing this church should lead us and motivate us toward missions and evangelism. Lesson one, pride comes before destruction. Lesson two, earthly kingdoms will fall. Look with me at verses 19 through 22. In Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the splendor and pomp of the Chaldeans will be like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew them. It will, be, it will never be inhabited or lived in all and for all generations, and no Arab will pitch his tent there. No shepherds will make their flocks lie down there, but the wild animals will lie down there, and the houses will be full of howling creatures. The, their ostriches will dwell, and there, will, and there wild goats will dance. Hyenas will cry in its towers and jackals in the pleasant places. Its time is close at hand, and its days will not be prolonged." In 689 BC, the kingdom of Babylon was completely destroyed by the Assyrian army, or the, by um, King Sennacherib and the Assyrian army. It was, it was completely destroyed. After the city declined, soon it was no more, and Isaiah's prophecy was fulfilled because the nation was never rebuilt. Kingdom was never rebuilt. That's how how these things came to be in the Old Testament. You have a country that gets conquered by another country. They, they level everything down and build on top of that ruin. And then the next country will come and, and conquer and level everything down and build on top of that. And that's what happened with this nation of Babylon. It was never rebuilt. The kingdom of Babylon. How about you, church? Are you building a kingdom here on earth? I want to submit to all of us that we are all building a kingdom. The question is, what kind of kingdom are you building? Is it an earthly kingdom or is it a heavenly kingdom? Is it your kingdom or is it God's kingdom that you're building? As Christians, I want to challenge us today, don't get caught up in the temptations and the splendor and the pomp of building an earthly kingdom. It won't last. They're going to fall. So what is an earthly kingdom? I think an earthly kingdom could be a nice, big home. It could be a successful business. It can be a successful career. Now, please hear me. If God has blessed you with the financial means to purchase a nice home or build a nice house, there's nothing wrong with that because God bestows blessings upon us for us to enjoy. The Bible does not say you shall not build or buy a new home or build a successful career or a successful business, but it does say let God's kingdom come and let his will be done. See, church, Trinity, what I'm discouraging us from is becoming those who only build an earthly kingdom. 
Instead, if God has blessed you with a nice home or or a successful business, then use it as a leverage to increase God's kingdom. Now, a nice home doesn't necessarily mean big and plush with all up-to-date appliances and furniture. It could simply be a comfortable home. I love it when brothers and sisters in Christ open up their homes to people where others can gather in their home and experience God's love, grace, and mercy. Where others can hear of the good news of the gospel, where the gift of hospitality is practiced, and where God's kingdom is built up. Let me ask you this, community group leaders, or if you host a community group in your home, do you invite your neighbors near your home? This is why we call it community groups, because we meet in communities for the purpose of evangelizing our neighborhood. Now, you don't have to be hosting a community group. Most of us own a home. How are you reaching out? to your neighbors who are unbelievers, who are unchurched for the glory of God and for their salvation. Let's not build earthly kingdoms, church. They will fall. But God's kingdom will last. That's the third lesson that we can learn from this passage. Moving on to chapter 14. Look with me at chapter 14, verses 1 and following. It says, For the Lord will have compassion on Jacob, and will again choose Israel, and will set them in their own land, and sojourners will join them, and will attach themselves to the house of Jacob. (laughs) Isn't it glorious that in the middle of pronouncing oracles against these proud and arrogant nations that God is setting apart a people for himself. It's a glorious thing in the middle of destruction. If you lived in Judah back in the day and you read this, this would have given you hope. This would have given you hope for the future. Listen, by bringing destruction upon Babylon... Well, its destruction was given, was giving a way to the to, to, to Judah's salvation. Why does God remain faithful toward his people who did not trust in him? Because God loves them. Why does God remain faithful toward you when you don't trust in him? Because God loves you. He remains faithful toward you because he wants to restore you when you don't trust in him. He remains faithful toward you for his glory and for your good. Is that me? Why did God... Destroy the prideful and arrogant kingdom of Babylon. It was because of his compassion for his people.
Why doesn't God just wipe out Jacob completely when Jacob rejected God's offer to protect them from the, the threat of the attack of the neighboring enemies? Why doesn't he just wipe the rebellious people of God? Because God is faithful to his promises to bless the nations through Jacob. Even though God disciplined his sinful people with the rod, he didn't abandon them. Why? Because he chose them to be the people to carry out his Abrahamic covenant. Through the remnant of Jacob, our Lord and Savior Jesus, Jesus Christ came to bring us good news of the gospel that can save the world from the fallenness of sin. And today, he chose the church to carry out his Abrahamic covenant, to bless the nations with the gospel that will ultimately deliver them from Satan, sin, and death. And with our obedience, and with the help of the Holy Spirit, we have the privileged church to be part of God's redemptive history. Church, God's kingdom will last forever, and he is worthy of our trust. Look with me one more time at verse 1 in chapter 14. For the Lord will have compassion on Jacob and will again choose Israel and will set them in their own land, and sojourners will join them and will attach themselves to the house of Jacob. Did you notice that sojourners joined the people of God and that they attach themselves to the house of Jacob. The Bible uses the word sojourners to mean strangers, aliens, newcomers that lack inherited rights. Trinity, remember formerly we were strangers and aliens and we were separated from Christ. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 12 says this, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and the strangers and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. We were at one time sojourners. We were at one time strangers to the covenants of good promises. We were aliens. We lacked inherent rights to God's promises. Listen to verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Church, there are still people whom God has chosen to be saved, who are still separated from Christ, who are still alienated from the riches of the gospel, who are still strangers to God's good promises, who have no hope and without God in this world. Let me ask you this, church. How can the sojourners among our myths join us? Here's what you and me can do. By giving thanks to the Lord, by calling out his name, by making known his deeds among the peoples, by proclaiming that his name is exalted, by making known the glorious and mighty acts 
ask you this. How are you doing in evangelism? How are you sharing the good news of the gospel with the sojourners among us, the strangers and aliens? Melinda and I were on a date night last Friday night, and I give you permission to laugh at us, but it's okay. I love you anyway. One of our favorite date nights is to just buy a cup of coffee, and we'll go to Target, and we'll sit in the uh, garden for, uh, area, and we'll, we'll just sit in the patio furniture. <laughs> we can people watch, enjoy our cup of coffee, talk about our marriage, talk about our kids, talk about our finances, um, just catching up on what do we need to do to grow in our relationship with each other. And uh, so we were enjoying our time together when a group of teenagers had the same idea. Six <laughs> teenagers sat in front of us. And after all the cackling and the giggling, there were F-bombs being thrown left and right. And I was, uh, I was just thinking, okay, I cannot allow Melinda to be exposed to this type of language. We probably need to go pretty soon. But the Lord quickened to my heart. Alex, share the gospel. Yay. This is Friday night. <laughs> Sermon preparation. Um, it, I'm exhorting you to evangelize. And Josiah reminded us last week that it's just simply sharing the good news. So we got up. We walked towards the six kids. And we kept walking. And then God convicted me. We stopped. So Melinda looked at one aisle, pretending she was shopping while I was trying to get the nerve. Because <laughs> I had told her we, we need to share the gospel with her. I was praying, Lord, give me the strength. I didn't know what the plan was, but I knew Alex just obey. So we went back. And I just said, hey, guys, do any of you go to church? And they were all like, who is this Chinese man <laughs> bothering us? Ah, for the record, I'm Filipino, but that's, that's okay. That's what they were thinking. They're looking at each other, and it's like, what's happening here? I'm like, I, I'm actually a pastor. I, I, I go to a church in Titusville. I just wanted to invite you um, to go to church if you don't go to a church, if you're free on Sundays. And, you know, I didn't have a plan. I just wanted to talk with them. I just wanted to engage them. And so I said, do you have any questions about Christianity? And uh, one of them said, well, actually, I'm a Jew. And uh, I said, well, I respect that. Um, and so I just wanted to feel where they're at. And they were still like, what is happening here? <laughs> what is this guy doing? So. I said, well, I just wanted you to, uh, to, to be invited to our church if you were free on a Sunday. And I just said, you guys have a good rest of the night. So let me ask you this, church. Did I just evangelize those six senior high school students? No, I didn't. That was an epic fail, right? <laughs> and I just wanted to humble myself. And I just want to ask you, are any of you excelling in evangelism? Can you raise your hand? 
Good. I'm glad some of us are. And I, I, I would expect that. But for the majority of us, we're, we're really not, if we're honest. But even when we have the opportunity, we don't, we're not prepared. And so I want to encourage us, Casey Green is going to equip us in how to talk about the gospel with people in everyday living. Let's sign up for that. I am so grateful for that. You know, God is a God of redemption because the next day, Saturday, I was out mowing the lawn in the afternoon. And a friend of mine was working on his truck. And the Lord said, go share the, the, the good news of Jesus Christ. I hesitated, um, turned the mower off. I walked over a couple of doors down, and um, I just talked to him. I said, hey, what are you working on? And he's working on his truck. He's a truck enthusiast, and um, he had a truck prior to this one, and he had to trade it in. And the reason why is because his dad had a stroke, and he has um, elder parents, and he had to trade it in for a smaller one. And that got... Our conversation got, taught, uh, got turned into more of a death situation. I was like, okay, uh, we're talking about death. So I quickly just shared with him with, with joy. Do you know the good thing about death is Jesus Christ came to die for the forgiveness of our sins. And if we put our faith and trust in him, we have eternal life. Now, it wasn't a perfect presentation, but it, it, it didn't cause him to be defensive and I hope that I have more opportunities to share with him right where he's at it takes just a simple obedience and reliance of of the Holy Spirit and God will use us to let the sojourners the aliens the strangers those who have no inherent right to the good promises of God to be joined with the church to be attached to the church. <sighs> that was hard. Where are we at? We're at 37 minutes. All right. The fourth lesson that we can learn from this is people make lousy kings. People make lousy kings. Look with me at verses 13 and 14 of chapter 14. Listen to what the king of Babylon said of himself. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. As a result, because of his pomp and arrogance, God cut him down and brought him down to Sheol. Church, people make lousy kings. You and me, you and I make lousy kings. We all have the propensity to be kings. We all want to be rulers in our own kingdoms. We want to be served. We even have servants. They're called our children. <laughs> we want 
everything to rotate around us. We want everything to be done in our own way. We are inclined to a mentality of entitlement. We want to rule over the people around us. We even have modern thrones. I have one. It's called a recliner. But when the people that we want to rule over act in sinful defiance, how many of us are willing to lay down our lives for them? There was only one king who did that. The king of kings, the king of the universe, laid down his life to save a sinful people from the wages of sin, which is death. And his name, his name is King Jesus, and he is the Lord of our lives. His rule over us is holy and just and good and merciful and kind and compassionate. Oh, church, let us let us dethrone ourselves and let us enthrone the rightful king. We'll wait. <laughs> now let us dethrone ourselves. Jesus, who laid down his life to save wretched sinners like you and me so that as strangers, as aliens, as, as, as ones who, who didn't have inherent rights of the good promises can join the church. He did that so we can be friends of God. Here's the fifth and last lesson. Trusting in anything other than God is it's folly, it's futile. There, there is much that can be said about these verses. They're all about oracles against Assyria and Philistia. But there is one key word that I want us to focus on. This key word appears four times in four verses. It's the word purposed. Could you look at verses 24 to 27 with me? It says, the Lord of hosts has sworn, as I have planned, so shall it be. And as I have purposed, so shall it stand, that I will break the Assyrian in my land, and on my mountains trample him underfoot, and his yoke shall depart from them, and his burden from their shoulder. This is the purpose that is purposed concerning the whole earth. And this is the hand that is stretched out over all the nations for the Lord of hosts has purpose. And who will annul it? His hand is stretched out and who will turn it back? You see, what's going on here, church, is God offered the king of Judah protection when Syria and Ephraim were threatening to attack Judah. Instead of Trusting Yahweh, God, Judah, trusted in Assyria for their deliverance. Therefore, God's purpose for Judah was to discipline them with the rod of Assyria. And because Assyria was a prideful and arrogant nation, they wanted to annihilate Judah completely. But out of love and compassion, God will destroy it will destroy Assyria because of his love and compassion for his people. Here's what else is going here. Here's what else is going on here is after the death of Ahaz, King Ahaz, the king of Judah, 
Judah was weakened, and their neighbor Philistia thought that they could conquer Judah. But not so with God's purpose. Because he is committed to his people, because he loves his people, because he is compassionate towards his people, Philistia will be destroyed also. You see, God's purpose for his people is good. Trinity, God's purpose for you is good. Do you believe that? Even though your current situation is very dismal and the forecast of your life is cloudy with a 100% chance of rain, thunderstorms, and lightning, God's purpose for your life is still good. Do you believe that, church? Can you look with me again at verse 27? For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? Church, God has purposed things in your life, and you and nobody else can annul it. He has stretched out his hand, and you and nobody else can turn it back. Sometimes the purposes of God are painful and are not pleasant, Trust in the Lord. Why should you trust in the Lord? Because he is with you in all of your trials and sufferings of your life. God said, fear not, for I am with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. And he is working out his good purposes in all of your suffering, in all of your trials. Listen, sometimes it may feel like God is distant. And that he's not answering your prayers. And you don't feel his presence. He's not distant, church. He is right there with you to comfort you when you call out his name. Who else can you trust in for your deliverance? What else can you trust in for your deliverance? Trinity, trust God. In conclusion, look with me at verses or just, just verse 32, part B, the B part of verse 32 there. The Lord has founded Zion, and in her the afflicted of his people find refuge. Listen, do you feel overwhelmed by the weight of your sin? Run to Jesus where you can find forgiveness and where you, where you can find freedom from sin. Do you feel like your life is unstable and on unshaky or shaky ground? Run to Jesus where, we, where you will find a firm foundation. Are you anxious today? Are you feeling weighed down and burdened today? Run to Jesus and cast your anxieties and burden at his feet because he cares for you. Are you having trouble trusting God in your current circumstances? Run to Jesus because he is worthy of your trust. Would you stand with me, church? Let's pray. Father, I thank you.